organic free-range HTML, wild freshwater CSS, and 21-day matured JavaScript. This is not just a podcast. This is Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about inclusive components. What does it mean to be inclusive or a component? And what has that got to do with accessibility? We talked to author Hayden Pickering to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In getting started with an Express and ES6 Plus JavaScript stack, Jamie Corkhill gives a detailed introduction to building your first web application using a platform based on Node with Express, MongoDB, and the latest JavaScript features. There's so much detail, it'll take you an hour and a half to read, so a perfect one to bookmark for the holidays. Ronald Mendez asks, is there a future beyond writing great code? In his article, is there a future beyond writing great code? Looking at what happens when developers reach a point in their career when they've achieved many of their goals, Ronald highlights some of the options for what might come next. Turning a URL into a rich, embeddable HTML snippet is the subject of the article Programmatically Discovering Sharing Code with Oembed by Drew McClellan. That's me. In the article, I take a look at the Oembed standard, which is useful to know about if you have a published content that may contain user-entered URLs. In Mastering OOP, A Practical Guide to Inheritance, Interfaces and Abstract Classes, Ryan Kay looks at some of the fundamentals of object-oriented programming with a focus on demonstrating what things are and how they're used, not just describing them. If you've ever struggled with some of the formal OOP concepts, this article might be just what you need to finally get to grips. And, rather than do a roundup of the best deals available over the Black Friday weekend, Smashing's own Rachel Andrew rounds up some of the best independent products and makers that you can find right from the comfort of your own sofa. It's not about the deals so much as finding and supporting initiatives within our own community. If you have money to spend this holiday season, why not send some of it to folk creating great stuff within our community? And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a freelance web accessibility consultant, interface designer, and writer. His work focuses on accessible user experience design, as well as writing and editing for Smashing Magazine. He's the author of the acclaimed book about accessible web application design, Apps for All, and has just released a new book, Inclusive Components, all about how to build accessible web interfaces, again with Smashing Magazine. He's clearly an expert on the subject of accessible design, but did you know he was the first male human to jump the Sydney Harbour Bridge in a speedboat? My smashing friends, please welcome Hayden Pickering. Hi Hayden, how are you? I'm smashing. I'm on brand. I wanted to talk to you today about the subject of your new book, Inclusive Components. Yes. Obviously just a a two-word title, but I feel like each of those words does a a lot of heavy lifting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, starting at the end, as is obviously logical to do, components. Is this about sort of component-based design? and What is that? Yeah, so um, I suppose... It's been a while now since people, front-end developers, designers, and everyone who collaborates on making interfaces started to think about things in terms of components and dividing things up into 
digestible and reusable morsels. And I suppose if you're not familiar with that way of working for whatever reason, it really is a bit like uh, electronic components. Um, my my father is an electronic engineer. He works in the sort of analog world of circuit boards and uh, solder and all that kind of thing. In fact, he he's made some components, very small components, which have been used to regulate the current going into electromagnets at CERN. And he had a lot of faith in me as a kid because he got me to actually um, solder some of the bits for them. I think that batch has now been retired. So don't worry <laughs> about my uh, poor soldering, my poor teenage soldering uh, being involved in CERN anymore. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's a, it is analogous to, ana- oh, there's too many analogs in there. It's analogous to analog circuit boards in that you have, the idea is you have single responsibilities for, for um, individual parts or components and together they make the circuit and together they augment the, the current in the case of a circuit or the, I guess the interface or the outcome in whatever way in a, in a design system or in an interface uh, as manifested through a design system. And so inclusive components because I wanted to address the fact that, well, I mean, accessibility does tend to get left behind generally when we advance what we're doing in different arenas. And I wanted to bring uh, accessibility and in the broader sense, inclusive design to bear on this kind of new way of thinking and making things using components or modules or whatever you want to call them. So the idea was to both bring accessibility to design systems, but by the same token, think systemically when it comes to trying to address accessibility think about solving kind of one problem in one place in terms of accessibility and making sure that simply propagates around uh the the pattern library or the design system at large in in a sort of uh, practical sense what does it actually look like to to work in a component based way what might an example of, of a component be so that I spe- there's different ways of conceiving and um, and coding components. I, t- I tend to get straight into the sort of nitty gritty of it, past the conceptual stuff, and think about how I might organise the code. I've actually come to focus a lot on custom elements, or if not custom elements, then normal elements, but with kind of JavaScript behaviour attached to them in a in a kind of isolated, componentized way. I really like the idea of components which are which are interoperable. And by that, I mean that they can be used across different um, frameworks and systems and approaches and technical stacks. And custom elements are nice like that because they're native. They can be used, you can define them in one place and then they could be used, say, in a React application or they could be used in a view application or they could be used in an angular application or whatever sort of larger state management technology you're using so for me usually a um usually a component will probably be a custom element i've worked on a project recently which isn't so much focused on accessibility although i've tried to make it as accessible as possible called every layout and it's all about um kind of trying to isolate um very specific kind of algorithms for css layout and they're defined as custom elements um, and and kind of they sort of deploy themselves and, and run their own CSS and and work as kind of like primitives within the larger system. I mean, in, in actual practical terms, we're talking a component might be something like a form field or. Yes. So it could be it could be a, something as simple as a as a, as an input, um, say, like a text input, or it could be something complex like a tab interface. And so the idea with inclusive components was to was to. Take the concept of one one component with it with its hopefully single purpose, like like a text input, and then think about all of the different things that could trip up different kinds of people and try and avoid them. Not avoid the people, <laughs> avoid the problems. It's not so much about including people; it's about trying not to arbitrarily exclude people. 
um, that seems to be the easiest way of approaching inclusive an inclusive design process for me is to is to kind of identify the potential exclusionary elements of something and and try and step around them so with a text input with a label you've got a number of different things there that you might want to worry about so you'd have whether or not it's actually labeled correctly for a start so are you using a label element and is that label element pointing to the text field using a uh, a for attribute so that the two things are programmatically associated so that when a screen reader user focuses the input they actually hear the label being announced so that's one thing to get right um then on a sort of more visual level, making sure that the, the label is clearly associated with that field and not a different field. And that, that's a question of white space and that kind of stuff. Um, also making sure that the label is not, un, is not sort of, you're not doing something fancy like putting the label underneath the form input, because then when you, uh, for instance, when a virtual keyboard comes up, that might become obscured. So it's taking into consideration those sorts of things. Making sure that the, the input itself has a focus style. So when you focus it with a keyboard, whether you're a habitual uh, keyboard user who uses keyboards to navigate or otherwise making sure that it's clear from the focus style that that's the input that you're focused on making sure that i mean things like autocomplete worrying about that whether autocomplete is appropriate and helpful in the context and whether or whether it's not and you know a lot of these things address disability directly but a lot of them are sort of broader in terms of usability and just making things as understandable as possible quite often there's a very sort of fine line or perhaps a blurred line between what addresses sort of usability for everyone and what addresses uh, disability and then to make it even more kind of difficult to pin down a like cognitive disability so if something is not very usable for someone who uh, does not have cognitive disabilities then it's going to be even more difficult to to um, work out and be able to use for someone who does have those kinds of challenges. So it's just trying to think about all of those things in one place. And really the book is just my, it's my thought process as I'm approaching each of those. So I, I did it as a, as a blog to begin with. And each, each pattern or each component is a blog post. And the text is just me going, so let's now address this potential issue. How do we go about that? Okay, we've, we've checked that one off. I think we're okay there. And by no means am I trying to say that these are perfect and that I thought of everything because that's not possible. So does taking a component-based approach to how you work on individual parts of an interface, I guess it allows you to go really deep on that particular item and make sure that you really heavily optimize it in the best way you can so that it's accessible to everyone. Is there a danger in doing that and doing that on, on lots of different components and then putting them all together on a page? Is there a danger that you can create issues that you weren't aware of because you're testing them individually and not together? That's a really good point. And I was going to, I was going to bring that up earlier, actually. I'm glad you said that. So in lots of ways, I think we have philosophically, we've, we've decided that we need to separate things into these individual components. And there's virtue to doing that because if it's isolated, then it's easier to kind of test and, and, and sort of treat as a, as a single thing. And you can kind of, in terms of the way we work, it makes things easier to manage. We do have to consider as well the fact that these things ultimately have to share the same space and join together into, into a larger system. And I, I don't think actually enough of our effort and thought goes into that funnily enough i think i think we we componentize things more to make our lives as engineers easier so that we're so that we we know what we're working on at what time but then we all, we often do neglect the fact that these things will be living in dynamic systems and they have to be i mean the every layout project although it's more about visual design and about layout is all about trying to make these little css primitives these little layout primitives in such a way that they 
they can sort of self-manage algorithmically so that you can take them out of a narrow column and put them in a wide column and then it will the the code itself will determine how many items abreast there should be or or whether it should reconfigure itself in some other way um, because we can't afford to constantly be intervening it has to be it has to be a system which is sort of self-knowing and intelligent i think there's always things which you can you can forget about so maybe you make a make a tab interface you've got a row of tabs you choose between the tab and the tab corresponds to a tab panel that opens something up and then someone will come along and they'll say well what if i want to put a tab interface inside a tab interface or some other component inside a tab interface and of course i mean it's, it's partially a technical concern as to whether that would be possible uh, but yeah, you've got to make the choice about whether you're going to make things as flexible as you can so that it's possible to sort of imbricate things in a complex way or simply write hard rules which say you can't put something inside here because the level of complexity in terms of the code would probably be too high, but also possibly in terms of how the user um, can perceive and use the thing. I'm I'm all for writing rules which say don't nest loads of complex functionality inside itself <laughs> because it's it's just not likely that people are going to be able to get their head around it, really. Uh, is it possible to take a sort of fully algorithmic or automated approach to designing for accessibility? Um, I don't believe so, no. I, I, so we have, we, we have automated tools, and I don't want to disparage automated tools in any way. I think they are very useful. But I use them as kind of like an early warning system to try and kind of get an impression of where the problem areas are. So if I was doing an audit for an organization who wanted some advice on how to make their products more accessible. Um, so it's a, it's a good way of kind of finding finding where the uh, problem areas are. But I mean, you can have an interface which is technically 100% accessible, perhaps according to some tool, even even some uh, a good tool for judging it, say against WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or or some other acceptance specification. And even though it's 100% sort of all the uh, boxes checked, it can still be entirely unusable for various reasons. Uh, for instance, as we're going back to what we were saying before, it can just be entirely too complex. You can just overwhelm someone with links and there's just no way that they'd be able to get through it. And then that becomes, it's a very sort of tacit thing and difficult thing to pin down, but it, it's its bound to just alienate people. But it's also, you know, you can, you can get, it's, it's very easy to get false positives and things like that. I had a, a thing uh, the other day, I said the other day, it was the other month I was working for an organization. And of course, they wanted to have a 100% accessibility lighthouse score. And there was an iframe which was dropped in there dynamically by a analytic script or something like, you know, the kind of thing where it's some sort of slightly gross code, which is just sort of chucked in the page to do some task like that. Now, I would I would recommend not using analytics uh, at all, but I would and, and I recommended to them to at least support the do not track protocol so that people could opt out. Unfortunately, that protocol is kind of doesn't really work anymore um, because it was never really supported properly. But this iframe, it was saying that it doesn't have a title on it. So the idea is that if you have an iframe, it should have a title attribute because that's the, the best sort of longstanding way of identifying what the iframe is for to a screen reader user. But this was an iframe that also was set to display none. So it wasn't even uh, perceivable to a screen reader in the first place because display none just as it hides things visually um, in a screen reader, it will uh, remo essentially remove it from the interface. So it won't be encountered or announced in any way. So it was a false positive. I mean, it was it was asking me to identify an iframe that was not there to be perceived in the first place. So there's always going to be those kinds of errors and problems in automated testing. But ultimately, it is it is about knowing, although it's just sort of a thing that programmers, I guess, don't really like to think that they're involved in and find it a bit icky, but it is about human behavior and about how 
people understand things. And that's a very difficult thing to just have a, a set of kind of binaries or Boolean sort of rules about. So, I mean, I, I, I spoke to a, a developer when I was consulting uh, some time ago about this and they kept saying, well, as long as we've got automated tests there, we're fine, aren't we? It's just, we, we can then, then we can just move forward. And you still have to test manually. There's no automated test which can really tell you if the using the interface by keyboard is impossible in one way or another. There are, there are sort of discrete things you can look for but the overall experience is still something that needs to be judged by a human being. Yeah. Sometimes the danger with automated tools is they look at items in isolation um, or they look at a, one interface in isolation and not see the wider context. Yes. I mean, no, certainly with using Lighthouse for performance audits, uh, sometimes I might make a decision as a developer to include there may be a lot more CSS than is used on that one page. And strictly speaking, I'm downloading too much CSS. But actually, I know that once once that file's loaded, by the time the user's browses to the next page, they've already got the CSS. So it's an, uh, an optimization that's being made across multiple pages. The, the, the tool looking at one page in isolation sees as, a, as an error. Yes, absolutely. You're thinking ahead and you're making a judgment call. And that, until we get to advanced AI... <laughs> To uh, to sort of uh, to anticipate that, then uh, then yeah, you really need human beings looking at it and going through it and going. I mean, so automated testing should be in place, as I say, sort of early warning system, diagnostic system. But there should also be, if you're interested in your organisation, really caring and getting uh, making things more inclusive and more accessible. There needs to be training as well. There needs to be Q and A. So I, I would write scripts for. This is how it should work when you when you interact with this component with a keyboard. Or this is how it should work when you interact with it with a screen reader, and I'd actually step through it. So, when you do this, this should happen. When you do this, this should happen. When you do this, this should appear, or you know that kind of stuff. So, and the kind of journey stuff, as you say, automated tools aren't aware of that. They only just they just see, oh, this doesn't have alt text here. And actually, in a lot of cases, maybe it shouldn't have alt text. Uh, and also, it can't judge whether you've written the alt text well or not. So, I think I think an image without alt- alternative text is probably better than an image with misleading or or just bad alternative texts. And that's a judgment call again, isn't it? So, One of the things that I've struggled with historically in building things in an accessible way is keeping my knowledge of the best practice up to date mm. because it's each time I, I refer to any documentation or any uh, sort of recommendations, it seems like what I was doing and thought I was doing the right thing, the recommendations have moved on and now I should be doing something else. I mean, that's a familiar story with all, all areas of working on the web. Yes. But I, th- I think the danger is, of course, with accessibility issues is that if you're not following the best practice, if you leave something in your interface that is now not uh, a good practice, that could be affecting your users in a, in a negative way. Mm. Does a component-based approach to building uh, an interface or a site, does it help with that at all in any way? I think just just in the purely in the sense that because you have one component, which then the idea, of course, in, in all cases, not just in terms of accessibility, is that you have this component defined in one place, which would then be used in different places, at, at least when specs or browser support or whatever it is changes and you want to update uh, the component, you only don't then have to do it in one place. And then wherever it's used, um, that um that uh, enhancement or that change will be felt. So from that regard, I think it's uh, it's certainly more useful to to have things divided into components. But then, yeah, as I say, that doesn't just affect accessibility. That kind of anything that changes. But then, you know, I'm not sure really how much changes in in its. I mean, there'll be a few sort of breaking changes in terms of sort of HTML accessibility, which is a very obviously a very narrow area. But in terms of like the the code quality or how the code works, there's 
things are introduced into um, the HTML spec, obviously, very slowly and not quite as slowly, but fairly slowly into the ARIA spec as well. And then much of ARIA just mirrors what's in the underlying sort of baseline HTML anyway. I think um, more so than the technology, the perception and understanding of these things uh, tends to change over time. I mean, there was recent in the WebAIM survey recently, they were identified that sites using ARIA were more inaccessible than sites that didn't use it. So this technology specifically specifically conceived in order to help people make websites more accessible was making it worse. So it's really, it's just, it's a knowledge gap, not a technology gap or a technology shortcoming. It's people just taking the technology and misusing it because they're not, they didn't really actually understand how it's intended to work, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully some of my writing might be able to help with that um, in some in some areas anyway. But a, a sort of well-structured component-based system would enable you, once you realise that something is, is out of date or you've made a, a poor decision uh, and you now know better, would enable you to more easily go in and fix that across your application. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 all about efficiency, isn't it, really? And the, 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 this dry dry principle or, or what have you. And I so say that, that's why I, I guess I was originally very excited about this opportunity because people always complain that, making things accessible um, is extra work and it's hard and it's upsetting and, um, and all of that. And so it was kind of an opportunity to, to say, well, you know how you're making this stuff really efficient, you know, efficiently building these component systems, um, get your accessibility in there for that one component that you're making. And then you don't have to worry about the accessibility anymore, apart from the occasional, occasional spec change or update or, or what have you. Or just, you know, I mean, probably most of the time, the iteration will simply be based on user feedback and and ongoing research, which obviously you should be as much as possible um, conducting with a diverse group of people. So you should be getting people with, who use different devices and have different browsing habits and use different assistive technologies and that kind of thing. And, and you know, things are bound to come up all the time. I think I've really pinned down a component, think it's really rock solid, and then do a bit of research and I find that I've made some pretty bad assumptions uh but yeah with a component system you only have to fix it in one place can a component ever be fully inclusive or is it a, a spectrum where you're just working ever more towards inclusivity yeah it's it would be possible for a component to be in terms of let's say um WCAG, it were you know error free it meets all of the WCAG criteria but as i said that that's only takes you so far and it could be entirely still be entirely unusable or or um impossible to understand even with those technical criteria met. So, um, yeah, I, this, this is something that I, I talk about a lot. I try to, try to um, convince people that, that accessibility is like any other area of design. It's just a part of the design process. And nothing, nothing can be perfectly designed, just like nothing can be perfectly accessible. I think, unfortunately, a lot of folks think of it in t- just in terms of, uh, of uh, just making sure that it, it is compatible with screen readers, which is obviously a very narrow scope in terms of accessibility and inclusion in general. Um, so then there, there will be people who, um, some good folks I've worked with, like at the Passielli Group, um, who, who would say, well, actually, I, I want to be known as a um, accessible UX person. So I, I, it's not just about this box ticking exercise. It's, it's more about actually trying to make the experience better and more valuable for the greater number of people uh, and move more towards sort of broader principles and things which were less binary. Um, but ultimately, it's all that. And, and WCAG and other, other such criteria can only 
can only really identify the real hard and fast, this is wrong stuff, I suppose. So if I'm a developer, what should I be doing differently as I approach how I design and, and plan and build a component? Is there anything that I should be considering in my work to make sure that that component is going to end up being as inclusive as possible? So, there, I mean, depending on what you're building, you, there's going to be different criteria which need to be met. So, not for instance, not every component is going to um, going to have the requirement to have accessible imagery with alternative text because it might not use imagery at all. It might just be text-based or what have you. Some might not be interactive. So, in terms of the... Sp- specific requirements then it would change between component but hopefully what some of my writing and what and what the inclusive components book helps you to do is to fall into or kind of adopt a discipline of just thinking inclusively so when you're approaching this stuff not just thinking well basically just getting out of the mindset of if it works for me it probably works for everyone else because simply it's simply not the case that the way that your eyebrows things. I mean, we'll probably do things completely differently. Just, just us two, right? right. Uh, and we're Western white English as first language people. And so, yeah, the, the amount of diversity in terms of the people consuming this, I mean, performance people always talk about this as well. People who are interested in advocating for better performance. It's, you know, you're used to using a high spec, uh, setup on a good network. Um, and a lot of your users or, or a lot of your potential users will certainly not be. And uh, same with accessibility. It's just a question of just basically just getting out of thinking, um, thinking about yourself, really, literally just that. And trying, obviously, to reach out beyond just, you know, your immediate colleagues and people in your same social group as well. So ho- hopefully it's, it's really just here's what I solve for this stuff and, and what I was thinking about at the time. You can, you can reuse some of those ideas and apply precisely what I've applied if you if that's useful or relevant to you. Hopefully that it's the book is more about just um here is here is a case study of an inclusive a person who tries to think inclusively, see the kind of things they were thinking about. When you're designing something completely different, perhaps just employ the same kind of thinking and try and open your mind up to to the diversity of um of users and, and how they go about things. So the book, the book itself, how did you decide how to structure it? It seems very fiercely practical, which I like in a book, but how, how have you structured it? Very much like the, the previous book actually was um, Inclusive Design Patterns. And I had a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble writing that book to begin with, because I tried to organize it in terms of um, kind of abstract criteria. So I, tr- I, I started out doing a chapter, which was all about keyboard accessibility. But that was very hard because then I had to kind of, every time I talked about a, a different type of keyboard accessibility or the thing thing that you have to think about, then I had to conjure some sort of component and then, and then ditch that component and then move on to something else. And so it just made more sense for me um, to organize things in terms of components themselves. So uh, Inclusive Design Patterns does this and now Inclusive Components is almost, it's really just a continuation which just covers different components. It's, it's different in that, uh, in terms of features, it's a bit different because it has, it also includes live code examples and stuff, which was, which, um, I didn't do so much for the, for the previous books, but, um, but yeah, it is literally just, we're going to do this component, whether it's a tab interface or a, a collapsible section or a theme switcher or a, um, notification flash card or toaster or whatever they're called. And then just everything is then organized around that component. So it's, this is what we're doing. And, and these are the things we should consider while we're doing it to be more inclusive. Um, because that's the way we, well, that's how I work and that's how other folks 
work. And as soon as I started doing it like that, it was really just me working and writing notes as I worked. And so the thing kind of wrote itself. Uh, and then all, all of the effort was really in actually just making sure that I was doing a, a decent job of making those things uh, not inaccessible, <laughs> I guess. Yes, the um, I mean the table of contents really reads uh, almost like documentation or like a, a self help manual or, or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Do straight in with chapter one toggle buttons. Yeah. Um, if you want to if you want to implement some toggle buttons, go to this chapter, read it, and you'll get everything you need to know yeah. about how to do that. Which is, is an approach I really like. Uh, you know, see things like collapsible sections, tabbed interface, theme switches, uh, data tables, mm. loads of actual real practical stuff that we're all building every day yeah um and i think we all probably could be building better <laughs> yeah that that was totally the idea because it was like um it wasn't just about me making my components it was it was it was a case and you've touched on it there which i'm glad you did which is it was of identifying common patterns that we all use so i mean there's tab interfaces everywhere and they're all implemented differently and they're all implemented variously very badly i mean i've implemented terrible tab interfaces and then i've learned a little about how bad they were for people. And then I've tried to make them a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. I've probably made 15 or 16 different versions of tab interfaces in my, in my time, uh, having been doing this kind of thing for years now. And, you know, they're getting, they're getting a bit better, hopefully every time, but it is just a common, a common thing. It's a common thing that I would use quite often between different websites I use and everyone uses. So part of the idea was to say, well, actually let's do a design system, kind of an, uh, an accessible design system for the web. Now, people are going to branch out and they're going to do, do their own versions of these things. But to kind of get the core stuff down and the accessibility is a core thing that should be in things. It shouldn't be an add-on. It shouldn't be a, an either-or. It shouldn't be a feature. It should be a core thing. And if you get that core stuff pared down, then, uh, yeah, hopefully people would look at the chapters and go, oh, okay, I've made those. I've seen those. Let's see how to do it um, as inclusively as possible. And then hopefully they get some value uh, from that. Well, what I like about it is I've certainly, I know I've in the past, I've, I've had some um, interface feature that I've needed to implement and I know that it's going to be tricky from an accessibility point of view, say some sort of a fly, fly out menu, a you know, drop down menu, something like that. Yes. I think, okay, here be dragons in terms of accessibility. I need, I need to make <laughs> sure I do this right. And so I Google for how to do it. I find a reputable source saying, use this method. I use that method. I implement it mm. and I move on. But I actually haven't learned anything. I haven't learned why the solution was there. Mm. And what I really like about the way you go into it in the book is I can do two things at once. I can figure out how I should be doing it and I can figure out why I should be doing it like that mm. because it's all very carefully um, explained so I, I think it's really successful from that point of view oh great I'm glad I'm, I'm, that was kind of that was what I was going for <laughs> so that's good but uh, yeah it's um, that seems to be my thing I mean I've been working with the BBC for some months and we've kind of made a thing a bit like inclusive components but for the BBC so we've done like a this sort of technical implementation with a through the lens of accessibility version of their design language called gel and uh, yeah it, it explains the why uh, as well as the how and it's it's not a pattern library the idea is that the individual departments at the BBC because there's so many of it because it's such a large organization so the BBC sport BBC weather BBC news they're the ones who would be taking care of the the kind of the technical stack and and making their pattern library and what we've really provided is just we've just tried to exemplify the best practices so it was really much more of a of a learning resource than than a, like a, a a simple plug and play pattern library yeah was it difficult deciding what patterns to include in the book was there, was there anything that you left out the, the only ones i really had like problems with or, or like second second thoughts about were the ones where 
the tab interface, for instance, I wasn't going to include because I really hate tab interfaces. But then I had folks saying, could you please do a tab interface? Could you could you include a chapter of that? Because I get asked to put them in my interface uh, all the time by clients or whoever. So I ended up doing one, but it's full of caveats. And the main caveat is, you know, probably don't use a tab interface. Uh, use like maybe an accordion. It's a, sim- it's a simpler interaction paradigm. It's easier to make responsive. It's easier to make compatible with screen readers, et cetera, et cetera. So I put all those caveats in. But um, yeah, some of them were ones where I just thought, oh, I, did- I haven't written about these before. And I could do with having sort of thought about it so that I could actually use it in my design work. And others were people requesting, um, saying, I know this is a gnarly one. I just don't know how to go about it. Could you give it a go? And so I gave it a go as best as I could. That is going to be the last time I write a book about accessibility because I've done three now. <laughs> so if anyone wants to know any more and if they think of any other components that they might want doing, just just DM me on Twitter or something and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll try and uh, try and deal with it in that way rather than writing a a whole article because those articles are quite long and they take up quite a lot of time and I've, I'm kind of um, doing other things at the moment. So, but I'm always happy to, to chat with if anyone has any like questions about this stuff. They might be working on, they might be working on something similar to what I've covered and they just, there was just something that they were unsure about or, or which I, for whatever reason, hadn't made as clear as they'd liked. Then um, yeah, then, then just contact me because I'm, I'm always happy to talk about the stuff because it helps me to sort of, ruminate over things and try to you know I, it might challenge my um, my assumptions and and help me to do a better job as well so the book inclusive components is available right now from smashing magazine mm-hmm. smashingmagazine.com slash books and uh, I'd, I'd recommend everybody check it out thank you um so i, I always like, I'd like to ask people um, I mean, Smashing is all about learning, right? With the books, the conferences, mm. the, the magazine, we're all about learning. What is it that you've been learning lately? So <laughs> recently, well, a couple of years ago, I made something, I made a drum machine using the Web Audio API um, called Beads. And it's still available as a PWA. It's a progressive web app. Uh, if, you, if you Google search Beads, GitHub or something like that, you should get the uh, the GitHub pages page, which has it on there. But that's like, that was a alpha version and i'm now working on doing a much more advanced version of this um and it's 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 a different kind of drum machine because it's polymetric it has different you can have uh, different tracks of different lengths so you can have a track which has seven beats and a track which has nine beats a track which has four beats and then the rhythm evolves over time because of the the changing syncopation you've got it's like multi-threaded that was the main reason that I wanted to build it because I, I, as someone who's interested in kind of experimental music, that's something I wanted to play with. Obviously I'm trying to make this drum machine as accessible as possible. And that's been interesting from the point of view now that I'm working with, um, I'm turning it into an electron app. So for those who don't know, electron allows you to kind of wrap a sandbox version of Chromium browser and have a, and, and create a desktop application, but using web technology, which was really great because it's, it makes thing for this project anyway, because it makes, um, it gets around a lot of performance problems, but also, although I've been, you know, I've been doing cross browser testing for, you know, 12 years now, it's really nice to have a break and just to design stuff for one browser. Uh, and it's got some like, so there's a, there's a flag in, in, uh, there's a flag in Chromium. Uh, it's a, what's it called? An experimental web platform feature for, focus visible so i've been able to make this drum machine completely keyboard accessible with these really nice big focus outlines without those appearing for um mouse users because focus visible uses this heuristic where 
Um, it detects whether or not you're using a keyboard. So that's been nice to be able to incorporate that. But the thing recently that I've been the, I've been learning about, just I've, I guess been learning about some of the things, some of the more advanced things you can do with the web audio API itself. So I had this problem where I have, um, you can put multiple sounds on one track. So you can load in an array of uh, audio files and it places them one after the other. Um, and if they, to, as by default, they overlap. So they'll, they'll always play out that the, the audio buffer will play until it finishes. So if the next sound comes before the end of that, it just overlaps, which is fine. It's kind of like a reverb or something. But sometimes if you're doing like an arpeggio, like a bass line or something, you don't want them to overlap. That's not how a bass guitar works, right? When you, if you're on the same string, you press the next note, the, the first one has to finish. So I was, I was stopping a note as the next one started. And there was, always an audible popping sound. And it's not the web audio API having a problem or anything like that. It's just the human ear will hear a kind of a nasty popping sound where you kind of sever a, a waveform. You just cut it and stop it dead. It's going to sound nasty. And then, so I found that there's a function as part of the web audio API, which allows you to um, choose a point where you can taper off the sound. So, um, so I was able to detect where the sound should end because the other sound is beginning, then taper it off very quickly but it is a taper like a fade out rather than a, a hard cut off thing so i solved that problem after um it annoying me for ages so it's basically been web audio api stuff and messing around with sounds because i've always been into as i say into experimental music and messing about that sort of stuff and i'm trying to write a talk about this uh and in the talk i'm using billy jean by michael jackson because it's it's a very straight four to the floor um uh rhythm and i'm going to kind of warp it in, in various different ways uh, so i've actually had to learn the parts for um, billy jean to kind of sequence that and stuff so weirdly enough that was what i was doing before before doing this podcast that sounds like a lot of fun so if you dear listener would like to learn more about hayden or hire him to consult on your projects you can follow him on twitter where he's at haydenworks or visit his website at haydenworks.com thanks for joining us hayden uh, do you have any parting words goodbye this is smashing and that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Mm-hmm.